I want to ask you to turn with me in God's Word this morning to the book of Galatians and chapter 6, where we will read Galatians 6, and I want to read the chapter together. Galatians 6, we'll begin at verse 1, please. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We trust the Lord will bless his word to our hearts. It has been already a time of blessing in God's house today in the Bible class and even in the time of prayer and in the the beginning of this service as the Lord's servant prayed and brought us to the throne of grace. We want to do that again. So bow your heads with me now, please, and seek God for his help as we hear his word. Our Father in heaven, we come unto thee this morning with such a feeling of thankfulness for God's continual mercies. And in contrast to us, who are so changeable, who are fickle and forgetful, our God is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one whose mercies are new every morning. And though, Lord, there have been many mornings when we have forgotten Thee, yet You have never forgotten us. It is by Thy grace that we have been kept this far. Lord, it is all of grace that we have been given a knowledge of salvation that the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts to make us new creatures, to give us faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ and cast ourselves upon him. 
And Lord, we ask that today as we consider the word of God, that it would be a time in which our faith is strengthened. Oh Lord, you know how much we need this. You know, O oh Lord, how many things there are, how many topics of conversation there are that would have us become downcast, that would discourage us, that would make us be weary even when we are exhorted in this passage not to be weary in well-doing. Lord, things, external influences, forces, sources of news that would cause us to be weary, that would cause us to take our eyes off the mark toward which we should be pressing. Oh Lord, as we consider this very central theme, I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to speak to us, that our minds would be drawn to our Savior, to his great sacrifice, to all that he has done for us. Oh Lord, and in return, may our hearts be drawn out to thee in love and in a desire to serve. Oh Lord, to, to love and to cherish thee and in turn to love and to cherish thy people and thy, thy work in a greater way than we ever have before. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for your own glory. Give help now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of things have changed in 20 years. One of those is that when I left here, I had never possessed a mobile phone. And now, of course, I've had one for quite some time. And I have to admit, I would be pretty lost without it. One of the effects of having these technological devices with which we communicate is that we don't write letters quite so often. It's been commented that in the losing the art of letter writing, we lose the opportunity to communicate with one another in a way that is truly meaningful. We lose the opportunity to express thoughts that might be somewhat devalued if we put them in a WhatsApp message and wrote them with poor spelling and incorrect grammar. Because when we write letters, we focus more. We are careful with our handwriting on the page. We think more carefully about what we want to say. We take more time to articulate our thoughts and we are more likely to pour out our hearts and tell the recipient how it is that we really feel. And Paul has written in Galatians 6 and verse 11 these words, ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. He's referring to the fact that in contrast to his normal custom, which was to dictate what he wanted to say to a scribe and have them write it down, that he has on this occasion picked up the pen himself. He has written the whole of the letter of Galatians with his own hand. He has not dictated it. And as we come to the end of this chapter and to the verse 11 and onwards, you have perhaps in some of your Bibles a little uh, section indicator which tells you that this is Paul's personal benediction. He comes to the end of his letter, many words, many things that he has taught the people. And it's, it's the same for us. When we come to the end of the letter, we want to close with something important, something impactful, something meaningful. And so give your attention to what it is that Paul focuses on. Because in verse 9, he has already warned the Galatians against false teachers. I'm sorry, chapter 1 and verse 9, at the opening of his letter, he warned the Galatians against false teachers. He told them, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And what do we find him returning to at the end of his letter? It's the same theme. He says in verse 12, of those who desire to make a fair show in the flesh, that they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Paul's aware that the believers in Galatia 
are being influenced by those who are false teachers. By those who profess to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but do not really do so. By those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, who do not have their confidence in him with faith alone, but add to this works and the necessity of external signs, including the sign of circumcision. They were insisting on Jewish customs, hence we refer to them as Judaizers. Those who were requiring ethnic Gentiles to take the sign of circumcision, even though Paul says in verse 15, circumcision, neither circumcision availeth anything. And so the Galatians believers were being influenced by people who had a great concern with appearances, who were only concerned with public reputation, and as verse 13 teaches us, were not truly pious. It says, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. They were only interested in appearances. We know many people like this today. Many people who wish to appear respectable, some who go further and wish to appear to be Christians, and yet they are not truly. Many false professors. And then we have Paul's real focus. What it is that he wants the Galatians to know at the end of this letter, something they can take away, something that will ring in their ears as they finish writing the letter. Verse 14, in contrast to the Judaizers, those who glory in personal appearance and in ticking boxes, Paul says, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I onto the world. Paul wants nothing to do with people who are concerned with appearances. He wants nothing to do with false teachers. And he wants the Galatian believers to have nothing to do with them either. Of course, he's not saying in verse 14 that he glories in a physical cross like some pieces of wood. He's not a relic hunter. No, he is glorying in the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was done there? What the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished as he hung on the tree at Calvary. And it was his determination that in the time that God gave him, however many years that would be, as God allowed him to continue to minister, to continue to live as a Christian, that he would glory in nothing save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, this should be not only Paul's personal motto, but ours as well. We live in a a prideful age an age of self, an age in which people boast and glory in many things. The word glory could be translated as boast. And, you know, you come to America and the very obvious thing in which people boast is sport, perhaps politics. It's the same in my country. People boast in many, many things. Few boast in the cross of Christ. But for those of us who are saved... For those of us to whom God has been so gracious as he has been to me, an, un, an undeserving sinner, and as he has been to many of you, we should not be characterized by boasting in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is firstly what we find in this text, that an exception was made for the cross. Paul says in verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we read these words, it's good for us to remember who actually spoke them and what we know about him. What is it about Paul that is a a lesson to us that 
Paul would say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. And here's a lesson for those of us perhaps who are unsaved, who would think yourself to be something, to be someone. Well, let's find out about the Apostle Paul. And if he would not glory in himself, then I'd submit it, you should not glory in yourself either. Paul was no ordinary person. He had a distinguished ancestry. If you turn with me to the book of Philippians, we'll learn about Paul in Philippians in chapter 3. Perhaps you could say that this is a short, uh, a very short autobiography. He describes his, his lineage, his upbringing. In Philippians 3, we learn that he was not an ordinary person, first of all, because he had such a distinguished ancestry. Perhaps you're one of those people who like to trace your family tree and see where it is and who it is that you came from. Well, Paul is able to say in Philippians 3 and verse 5, well, let's read verse 4. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Here's Paul's challenge to you. Paul had such a distinguished ancestry. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Look at that first phrase, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a pure Jew. He had an unmixed Jewish heritage. The nation who had been described by God as those whom he would take to be his people. And certainly many of the Jews boasted in that fact that their father was Abraham, that God had chosen them, that God had provided them with the land of Canaan and brought them into it. The Jews are a proud people in their ancestry. Paul was the same. And he had a distinguished ancestry. He also had an excellent education because we find that alluded to here in Philippians 3, but I'll also just refer to a verse in Acts 5. Acts 5 and 34, Paul tells us, of the kind of man who taught him, the man whom he learned from called Gamaliel. Acts 5.34 tells us Gamaliel was a doctor of the law, had in reputation by all the people. Paul had been very thoroughly, very intensely educated in the Old Testament scriptures. He knew them to an incredible degree. Not only had he an excellent education, but he had also conducted himself strictly according to Jewish customs, and here's the real test, because some of us might have a lineage and ancestry that is renowned and perhaps noble and of which we are proud. Some of us may have had excellent educations, and that's a blessing from God if we have. But here is the real, the real distinction of Paul's life before he was converted. He conducted himself very strictly. He did not allow himself to engage in vices. He did not allow himself to engage in what was seen by the Jews, the Pharisees, as sinful behavior. He was a strict man, a very self-righteous, a very, humanly speaking, a very upright and very moral person. Philippians 3, verse 6, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, as touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. If a person was able to, to earn their way into heaven... Paul would have been that person. If it was possible for a person to keep the law to such an extent that God would accept them, Paul would have been in with a very good shout. And yet we find that it is this man with such a remarkable upbringing, with so much to be proud of, humanly speaking, with such a wonderful education, and who had behaved himself and conducted himself so strictly, he says, God forbid that I should glory. 
And so this morning, if you and I would think ourselves to be someone, we should think again. Paul says that he would not boast in himself. And he has, I would say, already got most of us beaten for reasons to boast in ourselves. He was no ordinary person. And the Judaizers, the false teachers, those who were trying to have the the Galatian believers take the sign of circumcision, would have known this. And we thank God that he gave the church the apostle Paul. Of course, Paul's story goes on and it got much better because by the grace of God, he did not remain a self-righteous legalistic Jew But he had an encounter with Christ on the Damascus road. He was wonderfully saved. He was confronted by the Lord Jesus whom he had been persecuting. And he bowed in submission. His heart was changed. And then he he looked back at his old life. His pedigree, his training, his false religion, his morality. And he said, what things were gain to me those I counted loss for Christ. He gave it all up. I was reminded of that as we sang the hymn there, the third hymn. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. You know, Paul would have been able to mix with the other Jews and talk to them about his lineage, about his education, and he would have been received by them and they would have admired him. Don't we feel the temptation to To enjoy the vain things of life. Those things that charm us. Those things that are an attraction to us. And yet the hymn writer said. And Paul said that he would sacrifice everything. In which he would humanly normally boast. He would sacrifice them all to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What should you sacrifice for the Lord? What should I sacrifice? What self-indulgent pleasure Self-indulgent use of time. Would Christ call on us this morning to give up for him? And to stop boasting in ourselves. Paul now was a Christian. And of course he was no ordinary Christian. He was an apostle. He had received an extraordinary call from God to evangelize the Gentiles. And he went to many nations. And left behind an incredible, blessed legacy of gospel preaching. He was a spiritual father, therefore, to converts in a huge geographical area. We're we're amazed and impressed when we read the story of modern missionaries like William Carey or Adoniram Judson. But think of Paul. Think of what Paul did. One of the first. A pioneer in the real sense of the word. Going out from Israel and taking the gospel to places where it had never been heard. And receiving, as he says at the end of this chapter in Galatians 6, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He sacrificed so much for the Lord. He did not even boast or or, uh, glory in his comfort, which he could have had. But he put it all on the line. He was a spiritual father to many converts. He was a church planter of thriving works. He was one who contended for the faith, not just before common people, but also before the great, before governors and kings. He uh, was one who went there to Mars Hill in Athens and he presented the gospel to those who had never heard it before, to those who were from all parts, all walks of life. He brought them the gospel. 
He was a person, therefore, of great authority in the New Testament church because of all he had done. And when necessary, he was one who would rebuke other men of great spiritual stature, like Peter, for the sake of the gospel. Now, all that I've briefly mentioned that Paul did in his Christian service, if any of us were to be such a person, we, of course, would be tempted to be proud. We, of course, would be tempted to think of ourselves as someone. Oh, these people need me. I'm important. They appreciate me. Look what I've done. Paul didn't do that. He says, and we should take it literally, and believe the inspired word of God. God forbid that I should glory. And think of all that Paul did. And the little that I've done in comparison. Paul would not glory in anything except for this exception. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word, that phrase, God forbid, could be read as Paul's desire was far be it from me or let it not happen to me, Lord. Save me from my prideful heart, my tendency to glory in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're told in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. We know what we are like. God better perfectly knows what we are like, how, how quick we are to boast in ourselves, to boast in our name, our denomination, our group, our organization of people. We are so quick to boast in anything and everything, but the only thing in which we should boast is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on Calvary. Twice in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul Consistent with his words here in Galatians 6.14, his personal motto, he told the Corinthians, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If you want to be proud about something, if you want to boast about something, if you're going to, to present that kind of uh, speech to anyone, let it be the Lord. Nothing else. We are tempted at times to be proud and there are just, there's an endless list of things about which we could be proud. Perhaps uh, in our younger years, we might be proud of personal beauty. And in doing so, we would forget that beauty is vain. It disappears oh so quickly. Perhaps we would be tempted to be proud of our accomplishments. And we forget that the life that we have spent in achieving these things has been given to us by God. Job 12 and verse 10, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Your next breath is a gift. We might be proud of our ability or our talents, but we forget that it was God who gave us those talents and those abilities. And that we are required to use them for his glory and not ours. And Paul was consistent. He says in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 5, Yet of myself I will not glory, and there's only this exception. Save in the cross. Accept in the cross. You and I have some soul searching to do. Because even in the past week, I dare say we've breached this motto. We've gloried in self. In some thought, in some words, or in some action. We've shown that we're a proud people. We've shown that Christ's work 
And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ did not have that preeminent place in our hearts and in our minds, which it must, which it should have. For he died that we might be forgiven. I wonder how many times you've sung the following words, boasting excluded, pride I abase, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. It's a great challenge when we think carefully about what we sing. Is boasting really excluded from my life? Am I really seeking to abase my pride? Remembering that I am only a sinner, saved by grace. This personal motto not only shows us that Paul made an exception for the cross, and so should we, but it also tells us and reminds us that there was an exhibition made at the cross When you consider the cross, you contemplate the hill of Calvary and the wooden tree on which the Lord hung. We are considering a method of execution, a place of execution. One of the first times that the word cross is mentioned in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 16. And it says in verse 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem... And suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Of course, he had in mind the cross. And you'll find only three verses later, the Lord Jesus issues the challenge and says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so it was in the context of Christ's death that the disciples first learned about the cross in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, at least. And this phrase that was used by the Lord, take up his cross, would have been understood by Jewish people because of the occupying forces in the region, the Roman army, of course. And crucifixion was a Roman method of execution, which the body was suspended from a wooden cross, which is described by Paul in Galatians chapter 3 as a tree. Paul's use of the term tree relates back to the Jewish law, Because in Deuteronomy 21, it was permissible. Though the Jews could not execute a person upon the cross, they could display the body of an executed person on a tree in order to send out a message of the shamefulness of the crime that had been committed. That body was permitted to hang upon the tree until sundown, at which point it had to be taken and could not hang overnight. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3, reminds us that cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. That's what the Levitical law said. The hanging of a body on a tree was a cursed and a shameful thing. And crucifixion was the method of execution that God ordained the Lord Jesus Christ suffer. Therefore, while crucifixion in the time in which the Lord Jesus lived might have been a common occurrence, something that the disciples had seen as they walked through the roads and saw the cross and the body hanging on the cross, the cross of Christ was anything but common. While it was the method in which you could say common criminals were executed, and it might have appeared to some who saw Christ hanging on Calvary that he was Just a common criminal, for Isaiah tells us he was numbered with the transgressors. Thrown in alongside thieves and robbers, this was anything but a common death. This was anything but a common 
execution. It was absolutely unique. Because at the cross, there was an exhibition. And Paul, with the eyes of faith, saw that at the cross, there was a wonderful exhibition. To borrow from the language of the hymn we sang together, Paul had taken time, as we all should, to survey the cross and to consider what was exhibited there. He is viewing the cross. He's viewing the exhibition and what was exhibited. A few things to mention. God has exhibited at the cross his grace. It's at the cross that we see the grace of God so clearly because we see God's favor being shown to those who deserve his wrath. It's at the cross that the whole course of the history of redemption comes to that, that, that epicenter, that point when the one who was promised had now lived all his days appointed by God and had come to the time to give himself. It's at the cross that we see how sinners who are naturally separated from God can be brought nigh. It's because of what happened at the cross that you may be saved this morning. Whoever you are, however prideful, however much you may boast in yourself, the one who hung upon the cross is the boast of the believer because he is the one who gave himself for our sins. He is the one who has provided a perfect righteousness which is imputed to everyone who trusts in him. And God accepts that redeemed sinner. God justifies the one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, we see the grace of God that was so necessary if we were ever to be saved because at the cross we also see God's holiness and his justice. We see at the cross the fact that God hates sin, that he has a hatred for sin that we cannot fathom because that hatred for sin, that holiness and that requirement for sin to be punished led God to give his only begotten son, the second person of the Godhead, who took flesh, God gave him so that our sins would be paid for, so that your transgressions would be punished. It was, believer, your sin that nailed him to the tree. We see God's holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that God is the eternal antithesis to sin. God is absolutely apart from sin. 1 John 1 and verse 5 tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, no darkness of sin. In contrast to us who are so filled with, who are so filled with darkness in our natural state who are utterly blind and can't see ourselves for what we really are until the grace of God that bringeth salvation appears to us and shows us a holy God, a God that knows no compromise, a God, unbeliever, unsaved one, that cannot accept you as you are. You must come to Christ. You must have your sins taken away. And God will change you. And you will be accepted in the beloved. You will be accepted as you then are in Christ. God is infinitely holy and he is therefore also infinitely just. Verses that we read in the Bible class this morning actually. Romans 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the Holy One cannot allow sin to go unpunished. Because sin is an act of rebellion against him. 
It's the, cre- the, the creature rebelling and breaking the laws of the creator. God is just. God will render to every man according to his deeds. And if that is true, that God gives us what we deserve for our sin, then we could only be delivered from the wrath to come because of the wisdom of God. Because at the cross, we also see God's wisdom exhibited. It's at the cross that we see God providing the solution to the sinfulness of man. The way in which sinners can be saved. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Because in Christ the bleeding lamb of God we see the wisdom of God. That provided a way. A way in which he could remain perfectly holy and at the same time forgive guilty sinners. It's because of Jesus Christ that the scriptures can say truthfully that mercy and truth have met together and are in perfect harmony. And neither of those attributes of God have been changed or altered in the slightest degree. It's because of the cross. It's because of the wisdom that we see exhibited there. A wisdom that we cannot fathom. A wisdom that man could never have dreamt of because our only way, the only way in which we know to save ourselves is through works. It's through striving. It's through trying to be good and trying to do good. My friend, that will never, never get you into heaven. That will never bring about the pardon of your sin. It's only through Jesus Christ and his finished work. It's only possible to be justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who who suffered and died on the cross. Who offered himself in all his perfection. Who offered a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. And bore all the punishment that was due to all of his people. And paid that debt in full. Fourthly, in this verse, I see the exhibition of the cross that shows us God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I trust this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ is being lifted up before your eyes, that you can that you can see this exhibition and all that God displays of his wonderful character of the person of the Savior and of the way of salvation that is freely offered to you right now to save you from your pride that will take you to hell, to save you from all of your sin and to put you on a path for heaven. The cross is a wonderful exhibition And it is and should be our only subject of glorying because of all that it displays. It should be something that we want to talk about constantly because it is the message people need to hear. Because it is really when you consider this life and this sinful world and our our weakness and our feebleness, it is the only thing that is worth glorying in. There's nothing else worth boasting about. It all fades, doesn't last. But what was accomplished at the cross lasts forever. 
And it brings about a work in redeemed sinners that will last forever. My favorite verse in the Bible is Ecclesiastes 3.14. For I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. What God does is forever. And this brings me to a final thought this morning, which is to point out to you from Galatians 6.14 that an effect is made by the cross. An effect is made by the cross. Paul says at the close of the verse, by whom, speaking of the Lord Jesus, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. It was characteristic of every great missionary Every person who achieved great things for God, that the world was crucified to them. That they were dead to the world. And that it was very plainly obvious to everybody else who knew them that they did not care for the world. That they did not care for stuff. They did not care for luxuries, possessions, wonderful experiences. And while it is not wrong to enjoy these things, has God given them to us? The effect of the cross is that all, who, all, all which natural man, sinners, so longs for and so desires is just dead to us. We don't care for it anymore because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The offense of the cross is well mentioned in Scripture. This is the effect of the cross to the unbeliever. It's an offense The verses I read in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross was a stumbling block to the Jew who did not accept the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. The cross was folly to the Greek. The idea that God would die was just nonsense to the Greek mind, the pagan mind. But unto us which are called. It is the power of God. The Christian, therefore, is one who has experienced a life-changing effect made by the cross The world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Whatever is crucified is dead. Therefore, Paul says, the world is dead to me and I to it. Unlike the false teachers that he mentioned in the previous few verses who were so concerned about secular interests and so concerned about appearances and about popularity and always with this goes comfort, riches, wealth, ease, and Those people were so willing to accommodate their religion to those things. Paul is completely the opposite. He's dead to the world. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to receive in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. He's willing to sacrifice time and comfort and resources and energy for the the sake of the cross. Paul had become dead to the world. And one summary for what that word world means. It doesn't mean the planet. It means what is referred to in 1 John 2.15. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All that sinners long for. Paul's dead to it. And that's such a challenge to me. Because we have to seek by the grace of God daily to die to sin. That daily we would, as one of the great men of the past said, that we would be daily killing sin or it will be killing us. But the effect of the cross, the reality, child of God, the reality for you today is that because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because 
of the faith, the gift of God which has been given to you, by which you trust in the Lord Jesus, the world is dead to you. And you to it. Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul writes, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Not walking by the flesh, not walking in his own strength, but walking by faith. Here's the reality of one who has faith in Christ and who has experienced this effect. Paul is identifying in Galatians 2.20 with the Lord Jesus in his crucifixion. For just as Christ died on the cross, Paul has become dead to the world. He has become dead to sin. Those things have lost their power over him. The effect made by the cross. And there's such a challenge for us here. When we contemplate that scene at Calvary, where the Lord Jesus died and gave his life for our sins. An effect has been made. There is a reality for every child of God that we are redeemed, we are born again, and we therefore are dead to sin. I want to challenge you with the words of 1 John. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is referring to the effect made by the cross, which is that a man is dead to the world. And therefore, any of you this morning who, when you consider your life, consider your daily thoughts and desires and motivations and have to admit, I do, I lo- <coughs> Excuse me. I do love the world. I do love things that are worthless, things that will pass away. That is what I'm really living for. Perhaps the cross has yet to take effect in your life. I don't know you. But this is the challenge of the word of God. Paul could say, remembering all that he had, all that he had to be proud about, all that he could have enjoyed, a life of renown, a life of position and of wealth and of authority. He doesn't care. Consider this morning if you are dead to the world because that is the effect that the cross makes. Believer, the one who is truly a child of God will not be loving, habitually loving the world. Uh, the world's business and pleasure will not consume the child of God. Selfish desires will not control us because the cross has made an effect in our lives and it should be our prayer. It is for me and it is for you. My prayer for all of you as a congregation that the effect of the cross as time goes on will be more and more seen in your lives. That the people who know you and work, your family, will be able to see this person really doesn't care about anything except the Lord Jesus. This person talks about God a lot. This person won't do that, and I don't understand why, and it it annoys me, but they won't do it. It's because the effect has been made by the cross. And that's such a powerful witness. I was reminiscing when Dr. Pollock made his remarks that as a young boy, 
sitting in church, you're always watching people, aren't you? And I always carefully watched uh, those who were in training for the ministry. And because of my father being a pastor, frequently ministers were in our home. People in whose lives the effect of the cross was very plain, very clear. And certainly in our brother, Dr. Pollock's life, as I saw him go through training with his family and wait for the will of God to be revealed and now being led here, and in the lives of many other brothers, many other Christians, there has been such an example set for me that was so good to my soul to see people walking with God, to see people following the will of God. That was such an encouragement to me as a young boy, as a teenager, as a young man. You never know who is watching you. You never know whose life you could be impacting. I guarantee you there is someone. May it be said of all our lives that the effect of the cross is very, very clear. That we are not worldly people. That we are people whose lives are given over to glorying in and worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the number one in our lives. Whatever language people who don't know anything about the Bible, about Christianity would put it in. That it would be that clear to them. And that through our life and witness that the Lord would be pleased to use that and see of others. And build up his church. The challenge of God's word to us today. Paul's personal motto. But God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me. And I unto the world. Praise God that this world is not my home. While I'm in a place that is special to me, one day it'll all be gone, and that's fine, because I'll be in heaven. And many of you will as well. Until that day, may God give us grace to have sin crucified in our lives daily, to glory only in the cross, and to serve Him, and to be a witness for Him. May God write his word upon our hearts. Let's close in prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, for your wonderful grace to us. For the fact that we, as all the people around us, were those with unclean lips, those who were rebels against God, those who went our own way and did whatever we wanted to satisfy our desires, the lusts of our flesh, and the desires of our mind. And yet, O oh Lord, you saw fit to reveal the Lord Jesus to us, the one who hung between the two thieves, the one who was numbered with the transgressors, and yet the one who is the very Son of God. As the, the centurion confessed as he watched the Lord die, Truly, this was the Son of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless this word to our hearts, that the scriptures, that all that has been of thyself would remain in our minds. Lord, that we would be enabled to make it our focus, our determination, as it was Paul's, 
to glory only in the cross, to not be a prideful people in ourselves, to give place one to the other, to dwell with one another in humility, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray for this congregation. We thank you so much for it. We thank you for Dr. Pollock, for his family, for all those who serve the Lord here, holding office, doing uh, labor in this place, um, Lord, in ways that are, are seen or in many occasions, Lord, unseen. And we ask, O oh God, that you would motivate this congregation to go forward together in the love of Christ, with love for the unsaved, continuing in their ministry, not being weary in well-doing, but trusting that in due season they will reap. Oh Lord, we pray for reaping. We pray for the salvation of family members and friends that the gospel, the seed that has been sown, would bear forth much fruit. What a joy it would be, Lord, to hear of this. We ask, O God, that you would do it for your own glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.